0: Uh-oh, that cut out. For- Your voice, there we go, okay. Yeah, but what's it? Uh, it's playing music, and I don't know why. <laughs> it's very nice, I think it's Annie DeFranco, because that's what I've been listening to, but I have no idea where it's coming from. that is wild yeah uh yeah it is well it's amazon music and i guess i accidentally started i turned it off yeah it was annie defranco the song was called tis of v and i was tempted to just let it run during the interview because uh Why not? But, uh, so at least I would have that. You wouldn't have that. So there would be no copyright implications, but, uh, it would be good for me. But, but I thought, "Mm, no, let's try to stay focused here. (laughs) All right. Already started. Oh yeah. I do this. I do this all the time, um, especially since uh, with the uh, Google Recorder, which is what I use. I'm on the Pixel 4. There's an auto... (laughs) And I see you're recording now, too. Uh, Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, the Pixel 4 also does an automated transcription. So I get everything I said... Uh, recorded plus everything I said in transcript and uh, it's not perfect but and it needs editing after but it's pretty good and uh, that's why I specifically bought that phone was for that capacity Um, and uh, yeah it's among the better automated transcription uh, features out there Oh, yeah. Sure. I'm Stephen Downs. Uh, I'm a senior research officer. That's the official title. Um, And I work with the National Research Council of Canada. I'm based in Castleman, Ontario, which is a village of about 2,000 people, partway between Ottawa and Montreal in Canada. Right. Yeah, sure. So back in the day, by that we mean 2008, which is only 13 years ago, if you can imagine that. Um, and uh, the course was called Connectivism and Connective Knowledge. I offered it with George Siemens. And then various other people, including especially Dave Cormier, came along for the ride to help out. And uh, uh, basically, the year before, George had offered uh, a conference on uh, an online conference on connectivism, uh, at which I spoke. <laughs> yeah, so connectiv- connectivism is the theory that knowledge consists of the connections between entities. Um, and that learning is the creation and adjustment of these connections. Most notably, uh, the connections that we're talking about are neural connections, the connections between our neurons, because our neurons are cells in the brain that link to each other, and these connections grow shape and form as we learn and it's this growth shaping and forming that actually is the learning that a human undertakes but you also see the same sort of thing happening in artificial neural networks which used to be called connectionist systems. Notice the difference in term. Um, And we also see the same sort of learning happen in other kinds of connected systems, for example, social networks or even society at large. So our conference was about that and about using that kind of idea as a learning theory and bracket By theory, I'm just using that loosely, we could argue. Uh, (laughs) um, So uh, it was widely attended. It's a huge conference, uh, very popular. But we faced the common problem because connectivism is a a theory that we were both working on at the time. Nobody understood what we were talking about. Nobody. Nobody. Well, that's not true, obviously, I'm exaggerating, but people didn't get it, uh, even after an entire conference of trying to explain it. So, George and I were sitting at uh, a conference in Memphis, of all places, a lovely city, I'd love to go back there one day, Um, and uh, we decided, you know what we should do? We should have an online course. And that was the first thought. And then the second thought, which came a little bit later, but not much later, was that, and this course shouldn't just talk about connectivism, it should be connectivist. And so that's what we did. Uh, we, We set up the course. Uh, We set up a bunch of different things. Uh, George set up a Moodle installation. We set up some discussion boards. I used an application that I wrote called Grasshopper, and I still use that to this day, uh, to uh, manage the mailing list, uh, collect subscriptions, harvest resources from different people's blogs. In other words, to make the course a connectivist course. And we expected... You know, because connectivism back then, and even today, is a pretty niche topic. <coughs> Excuse me. So, we expected, you can edit the cough out, I suppose. Because <laughs> <coughs> they're going to have another one. We expected, you know, 20 people, whatever. We got 2,200 people. And uh, Dave Cormier, in conversation with Brian Alexander sometime around then, called it, A massive open online course or MOOC. um, And the name stuck. And that's what makes it the first MOOC. And to be clear, it wasn't the first open online course. It wasn't even the first massive course offered online. But it was the first course deliberately designed, I think, deliberately designed as a network, right? Uh, And it was the fact that we designed it this way. Which made it possible for us to offer it to 2200 people when they suddenly showed up because we hadn't planned for that. Uh, if it had been a traditional Moodle course, w- we would have been toast. Unheard <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <inaudible> of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might get them in a mailing list where uh, a series of emails. Uh, was called a course, and that was, that predated us by like ten years. Uh, I remember taking, a, you know, an open mailing list course on "Welcome to the Internet" <laughs> uh, back in the nineties. I was, you know, so. But this was different. It, it was more like a course, particularly in that it wasn't just a broadcast, but we were really promoting and stimulating all the interaction and conversation etc. that you would expect in a course we were creating that but for 2200 people and I think that's the part that was unprecedented Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Norvig and Thrun, particularly, um, with, yeah, that's right, with their AI course in uh, 2011. And that attracted, I think it was, the number was 160,000 people, although I've heard, you all know, estimates plus or minus 100,000. So, um Needless to say, it was another order of magnitude larger, and that really caught the public attention not surprisingly yeah
1: yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's been, a, you know, a constant increase in the number of courses, the number of people taking these courses, and the number of providers. It's been a steady increase since 2008, so it doesn't really matter what the media says about, you know, whether it talks about them at all, or whether it says they're alive or dead. Uh, the facts uh, speak to a, a constant increase over time and uh, you know and I, I you know refer to the statistics that are collected by uh, I think it's class central but there's another one out there as well I can't remember the name uh, you know but, but people are collecting these statistics I am not collecting these statistics so let's be clear but these statistics which are easily verifiable because you know you're identifying an existing MOOC which is pretty easy to find online That's what they're showing. And especially the provider thing, and I think that's worth highlighting. Um, In the years that followed, uh, 2008, I worked with various organizations, uh, including, for example, uh, the Arab League, which was working on an Arabic MOOC platform. Uh, I talked with a number of people in various countries, um, some Spanish-speaking MOOC initiatives, and we're seeing all of these platforms. I I actually offered a MOOC with something called Emma, the U- European Multiple MOOC Aggregator, based in Naples, um, and uh, you know, and it, it didn't have a hundred thousand people in it, obviously. But the thing is, there are all of these other platforms. Uh, uh, I can't pronounce the Chinese one, but it's Zio Zing or. I can't pronounce it. Because I don't know what X should sound like. A Chinese X should sound like in English. And I've never actually heard anyone actually say it. Um, Have you heard it? No? Oh, you're on mute. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So, so... There are all of these providers and the media naturally focused, because this is what the media does, on the high-profile institutions, Stanford, MIT, uh, Harvard, which they came out with, edX, uh, the Open University in Britain, which came out with FutureLearn. Uh, So they focused on high-profile institutions and commercial initiatives uh, which, again, is what the media loves, and pretty much ignored all of the rest of them. All of the rest of them are much more than just these institutions, um, in my view. Uh, by much more, we could talk about what we mean by more, because in terms of raw numbers of students, I'm not sure how many has, you know, I think, I mean, I imagine the Chinese provider has many more students, Uh, I imagine, I know that there's a a MOOC platform being used in India, which probably has many more students, but I don't know if the actual counts. But more to the point, it shows that there are more models of MOOCs out there than the commercial platforms offered by people who got a boost from working at high-profile institutions. Much more. But that's what the media focuses on, and that's why they declared them dead, because, you know these were uh you know losing some of their uh momentum mhm Yeah. Uh, Off of, well, let's be clear, off of your radar, right? Off of the media, off of the commercial media's radar. It's very much on the radar of the larger um, online learning community. I mean, it's not like people don't know about this. (laughs) You know, you still have millions of people participating in these things. It's not like it's unknown. It's just it it's, you know, it's not famous institutions and it's not commercial. So, therefore, it doesn't exist. hmm
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, I, so uh, I was going to say, oh, that's an interesting question, but of course, you're asking about something I said. So, of course, I think that's an interesting question. Um, but, uh, so, okay, to to begin, the the registration requirement for MOOCs and online courses is, in general, is virtually ubiquitous. Uh, it's not limited to the commercial model, although it does speak, I would say, to the commercialism in our sector. Um and, uh, you know, I did a presentation, as you know, uh, just a few days ago, and one of the first slides in the presentation was uh, a collage of all of these registration forms. And I looked at all the information that they're asking for from participants. And it's a lot. Uh, it's way more than is needed from my uh perspective in order to offer open online learning um, you know names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, passport numbers, photographs uh, and the list goes on and uh, you know this is this is a carryover not just from uh, the idea of commercialization but also the idea of traditional educational practice i mean before the internet before anything of this when we went to university we would have to apply for admission we'd have to give all of this information over to the university along with transcripts and proof that we were real people and and all the rest of it and that was just part of the process and so that thinking has carried over. You know, you offer education, this is what you do. Um, The commercialization takes that up a notch because all of this information now is a commodity that can be used for a wide variety of purposes. And you know, for the, the actual commercial MOOCs, which is, of course, a contradiction in terms practically. Uh, One of the first things that they're going to use this information for is for billing purposes. Because people aren't worried about qualification for admissions anymore when we're talking about open online courses. There are very few of those actually demand a transcript or your high school graduation diploma or anything like that Um, for the very good reason that there's no reason to do so. MOOCs are, or they were, free... Uh, You can join one, drop out any time. It's a zero-risk proposition for both the people offering the MOOC and the people taking the MOOC. So there's no real need to make sure somebody would be able to complete the course. Uh, People can figure out pretty quickly for themselves whether they complete the course. And they haven't risked anything, so they haven't lost anything if they drop out. So, oh, there's a person coming in the room. Hello, person. Uh, And there's a person leaving the room. (laughs) I couldn't resist. Um, So, uh, now I've lost my train of thought. Uh, Commercialization. So, uh, the first thing that uh, the commercial MOOC providers did is to use this information to, uh, well... Charge tuition fees, um, the uh, or more accurately, the the first thing they did was to use the information for upselling. Uh, so you you gave them a free product, and then you would try to upsell them. Uh, you know, uh, credentialing, proctoring, uh, diploma, whatever. And there's there's a range of things that can be upsold in a MOOC. But eventually upselling didn't earn them enough money, so they just simply started charging tuition. Uh, But it's not just that. The actual information itself may be taken and sold, used as marketing or whatever. Uh, I would imagine that products like Google Classroom are engaged in this practice, although I lack proof. Uh, and somebody will investigate this I'm sure at some point to see whether it is or is not the case. Um, but there's no denying the fact that you know there is the marketing aspect. Even uh, nonprofit uh, or government funded institutions are collecting this information um, in order to qualify for government grants, continued funding etc so, uh, it all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The downside is it changes the relation between the student and the institution. Uh, right off the bat, you know, if you go to take a course and the first thing you see is uh, a sign in barrier. Right off the bat, the relationship between the institution and you has been established as a power relationship. That form says, we are the ones in charge. You will do what we ask you to do. Sign, fill in your name, do this, right? Um, uh, Your access to this course is contingent on uh, our continued generosity, you see what I mean? Uh, it, it forces them into uh, a producer-consumer relationship. Uh, but but even more to the point, because this is always used for either measurement or productization or commodification, uh, the information that is being gathered is reflective of what is being valued by the provider. Um you know, they, they say, you know, you, you can't, uh, can't manage what you can't measure, or you don't manage, you know. But the converse of that is, if you're measuring something, it's because you're intending to manage for it. And you're intending to optimize for it. And if we look at what the optimization is for these statistics, first of all, it's number of people. Um, And people made a big deal. It's things like completion rates and people made a big deal about that because, of course, the tracking continues through the MOOC after. Um, It's for things like engagement. And there's a risk there because Facebook, as we know, optimizes for engagement. And look what happened there. Uh, So you see what I'm saying here is that the actual objective of providing an educational experience first of all, is turned into a power relationship, and secondly, is subverted into some other uh, objective or outcome, which is only remotely related to the actual educational experience. So, go ahead. Mm Mm-hmm
1: yep yeah (coughs)
0: yeah well and that's that's a very good point and I actually didn't raise that in my talk, but you're absolutely right. And I've I've mentioned this elsewhere, and it often comes up. Uh, if you put a registration barrier in front of course resources, you're making it the case that the only way somebody can access those course resources is to go through and register for it which means that there's no linking of these resources. There's no sharing of these resources. There's no real resource of these reuse of these resources in other courses. Uh, You know, just throwing something up on YouTube, I can. And in fact, I do embed that in my course, no problem. Throw the same thing up in something that requires a subscription wall, and it's locked in there. And even if I offer a link, They're not going to go directly there. They're going to go to the subscription wall. Um, Or as I call it, a spam wall.
1: Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. They don't exist there. And even YouTube isn't the best uh, place because, of course, um, you know, it used to be the case that, uh, you know, YouTube does offer open access, which is great um, in the sense that you can go there without logging in. But if you don't log in, they're going to show you uh, advertisements. And they will, and this was a change they made about a year, year and a half ago. They will show advertisements on content even if the provider of that content isn't one of their monetization partners. So even though I I prefer my work to be non-commercial, in theory, uh, Google could show advertising during my own videos on YouTube. Um, And I can't stop them. Uh, because I've been forced to license it as share-alike attribution um, and not non-commercial. So, you know, I mean, I'd rather just post videos openly somewhere else. But I use YouTube because uh, for a variety of reasons, but it's not ideal.
1: Yeah. I wonder what else you mentioned all this other
0: Um, well, first of all, the main lesson is there's a wide demand for open online learning. Uh, you don't have a phenomenon with millions of people without being able to say there's a wide demand. So we, we know people want this. Uh, they want to be able to learn about things online. Uh, I think that, and, and here again, this is speculation because I haven't actually done the measurements myself. But I think that if we looked at um, accesses or engagement or whatever between resources that require a login and resources that don't, that the engagement of resources that don't is much larger. Um, And we, we can see that just by looking at access statistics for YouTube. Um, I'm a devotee of history videos um on YouTube that's one of the things there's various other things um you know uh Stirling engines a, you give me a sterling engine video and I'm a sucker for it um or you know how to repair your bicycles also big with me and then you know how to do things like uh bike packing or mountain biking. Um, which I did last summer and it was awesome. Uh, so, and I look at, you know, I always look at how many people have watched this video. And typically, you know, your, your, your short little video, 10 minute video, or even half hour, hour long videos, which many of these are hundreds of thousands of views. Um, so. And again, you know that's the side of open online learning that never makes it to the press because a it's not being offered by an educational institution and b it's not commercial. Although you know on YouTube these are even sort of commercials and and you know uh, you know there are many places in addition where it's it's actually not commercial and they're even further below the radar. So. Uh, And I think that the MOOC experience overall shows the demand for this, but placed in the context of the wider sphere of open online learning also shows us the limitations of, uh, you know, taking the traditional educational approach to MOOCs, taking the, you know, putting the traditional trappings, uh, registration, degrees, even, um, you know, monitoring and tracking, etc. Uh, it, uh, it just shows the limitations of it. I, th- I think that's the main lesson. Are there other lessons that could be drawn? Oh, innumerable. Uh, What kind of videos work? Uh, Breaking the idea, you know, destroying the idea that your educational video has to be 10 minutes long. I've seen... You know, videos three hours long with hundreds of thousands of views uh, you know educational videos <laughs> not not uh, you know James bond um, and uh, so you know The idea that it has to be short, it has to be this, that, and the other thing. Well, yeah, if you're forcing people to watch it, probably it does have to be short. But if people are watching something out of their own interest, it's actually better if you go on, talk about it in some detail, um, and really give people the information that they need. But videos are just one thing, and of course there are many, many other kinds of ways of presenting learning content out there that exist, that again are widely used. Uh, Websites on this, uh, you know, infographics, I'm not really a fan, but there they are, they're out there. Uh, There's a wide variety of learning materials. People want these, they use these, they access them in huge numbers, and I have found that you can create really good educational experiences simply by curating these, linking to these, um, and and you know maybe offering some commentary around them. That's a good educational experience, and it allows me to bring my expertise uh, into an environment where there's a large number of open resources that anyone can access. Um, and I th- go ahead. Yeah, guys. Okay. Thank you for catching me because <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 hmm
0: Yeah. So, and I actually just read something from, I think, Neil Mosley about that, um, but we're seeing a lot of commentary on this. And my own prediction, and I still stand by this, is that the first reaction by the higher education sector will be, let's go back to normal. In fact, the first reaction by education generally will be, We all want to go back to normal. We all want it the way it was. We all want to be in person. We want to talk to people again. We want to have meetings and classes and labs and socialize in the bar. Well, maybe not in public school, but you know what I mean. Um, That's what we want. And there's a move already toward that. Uh, It's, you know, stronger in some areas than in others. But that's, so we're springing back. But then we'll be back and people will realize, well, this wasn't so great. Uh, I had to drive 30 minutes or an hour to get to this lecture hall to see a presentation I could have watched on video in my pajamas this morning. Instead, I had to spend all day doing this. That doesn't make sense. Or, you know, there was another thing that I I linked to in my newsletter recently. Um, You know, the remark that all uh, conferences will go back to being in person was met with sighs of despair from people who live in remote areas, rural areas, um, or people who can't afford air travel to... uh, I don't know, uh, Caribbean islands or Greek resorts, etc., because they can't, they'll no longer be able to attend these things. Um, And people, and even people who uh, are not students, and in fact, I would say, even especially people who are not students, who are not scholars, who have been outside this entire uh, environment because it was completely inaccessible to them who began to take part in these conferences, in these classes, uh, the ones that were open at least, realizing, hey, this could actually work. I could actually learn things this way. So these things sort of, they're, they're all small, they're all individual, but they gather some momentum. And people start saying, well, you know, why isn't that university offering online classes so I can take them at home in my pajamas? Um... Why are we, as uh, as a, a province or a state, funding this institution, which only offers classes to people who can afford the tuition and who can afford to go there in person? Um, yeah, My own employer, which is the government of Canada, which does have money but likes to manage it well, is telling all of us as research scientists, why are you flying to a conference to attend uh, and give talks and presentations when we've seen that you can do this perfectly well over the last year and a half, and and in fact we have been doing it perfectly well, and you know, so there's a there's a there's a bounce back, right? Um, so it's it's almost like the reverse of the Gartner hype curve, right? We'll we'll call it the the Downs disappointment curve. <laughs> so uh so we'll instead of the the peak of inflated expectations we'll we'll hit the trough of minimal exp- expectations and that's when we've gone back to normal. And then we'll gradually fall out of the trough of minimal expectations and get to a, uh, a plateau of, I don't like the word productivity, a, a plateau of, oh, I'm trying to think of something really snappy off the top of my, a plateau of engagement. Best I can do without having planned this, um, you know, we're yeah, you know, we're not going all the way back to 100 percent online, nor should we. Um, and there are reasons for that which we could articulate, but we're going back to an awful lot of online, a lot you know, uh, many times more than we had in the past, reaching many more people, doing many more things. And then finally, as we're engaged in this plateau of engagement, we begin to realize, uh, as, as those of us in the discipline did 20 years ago, what we can do online that we could never do in person. Um, you know, like, for example, Massive open online courses that are offered in a distributed fashion using aggregation, sharing, access, and all of that to create a conversation and engagement with thousands of people around a subject. yep <laughs> yeah. yeah okay the uh I, I got started <laughs> I got started in 1998 um I had been uh doing blogging before that I, I ran my own personal website since 1995 and uh One of the things that I had been doing was participating in various discussion boards, educator discussion boards, mailing lists, hot-wired, and I realized early on that these are gonna go away. And if they go away, then whatever I contributed to them will also disappear, and I thought that's a bad thing because what I contribute is valuable and useful. Um, So I began saving them, putting them on my website, uh, you know, what we call blogging today. Um, in uh, 1998, um, there was a combination of Dave Weiner and Netscape and others that came out with the the RSS format. Uh, the Netscape Net Center had the first I was feed number 31 in the Netscape Net Center. So I did. I, I took all of my contents and I made it an RSS feed. Every time I wrote something, whether it was a post to a newsletter, or sorry, a post to a discussion board or a a mailing list or whatever, put that on my website, put that in my RSS feed. And I did that for three years. And in 2001, uh, I realized that most people don't use, well, I knew this before, but most people don't use RSS or even the web, but email works really well so i took my existing uh feed and converted that into a newsletter uh and and the newsletter would actually generate automatically from my feed um and uh and so i was writing and then it would all automatically produce the newsletter and then people could sign up for it and it had immediate i mean before i even launched it officially i had 150 subscribers i thought this is gonna work, um, and uh, so I've been doing it ever since then. It's called OL Daily, as you know. Uh, it comes out weekdays because I like weekends off, uh, and uh, I also, when I launched it, uh, at the same time, offered a weekly version called OL Weekly, which you know doesn't get as much attention, but it has almost as many subscribers. And uh, with, you know, the exception of some uh, breaks here and there, and sometimes I take a day off, very rarely, uh, it's been going since then, since May of uh, 2001. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, but but here's where this, to take us back, here's where this sign-in thing comes in, right? Because I send people an email newsletter or an RSS newsletter, or now there's different versions as well, uh, JSON, web, whatever. uh, And I give them a short description and a link. And the idea is people get an introduction of a resource from me, and then they can click on the link to read the thing. Uh, And the reason for that is I want a distributed conversation, just like in a MOOC. Um, And that's what I think that I facilitate. And so I've introduced people to thousands and thousands of voices over the years, which I think is a worthwhile contribution to society. But if you throw up a subscription wall or a login or a paywall, then you've broken my newsletter, (laughs) And so as a result, um, I don't link to things that require that people sign in, uh, not even a, you know, register and you can get this content for free. I don't link to those. That's why, um, you know, the, the Chronicle of Higher Education wasn't linked to, uh, frequently in my newsletter at all, um, it was sometimes if they offered some content that was openly accessible, and then I called them things like the crankicle of higher education. Um, so I guess I wasn't really encouraging them. But similarly, uh, you know, you know, various magazines, newsletters, etc., have decided that the way to contribute to society is to throw up a subscription barrier or a sign-up barrier. That removes them from my newsletter. Uh, because the idea is, click on the link, read the thing. Because that's the model that works on the internet. That's what made the internet what it is. You know, the... <laughs> yeah, and, and it gets... You're still in my good books, Yeah um and and you know there are you know inside higher ed for example which i used to link to quite frequently has started throwing up this barrier the the chronicle still throws up this barrier they they had this thing where they were having a moment where they let people through and so i was able to link to a few but now they've gone back to a hard barrier again so boo yeah Oh, my pleasure. It's uh yeah, it's been a career. <laughs> no, but it's more it's been a pleasure. I mean, it's a way I think that I can be helpful to people and that really is what motivates me. Not billion dollar companies. Actually doing good. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah sure
0: Uh, off the top of my head, and I'd have to—I've covered it in my newsletter, uh, and my, the main point of my coverage was that Feldstein's uh, description of why he's doing this was that he received VC funding, so he quote finally had the opportunity to make a change in the field, and it struck me as unfortunate that. Uh, people would have the belief that the only way they can make a change in the field is to have VC financing uh, I, I hope my own work is living proof that no you don't need VC financing you don't need to launch a startup in order to make change in the field but that's a, a digression the model itself uh, has been done before um, there, there, over the years there have been many many attempts to aggregate uh, open or non-open online resources. I was involved in a project in uh, that started, in fact, in 2001, if you can believe it, called EduSource, which was a pan-Canadian network of learning object repositories, which in many ways is the Argos project. Um, so... <laughs> There's Merlot that still exists. Merlot had the, the idea of everything in Merlot would be uh, peer reviewed and that created a, a bottleneck. <laughs> oh no, there's, theres there's some selling marketplaces. Uh, teachers funding teachers, I think it's what it's called, is an example of that. Teachers paying teachers, isn't it? Whatever it is, yeah. So, you know, I mean, there are these marketplace models. I mean, if, you know, if you put down, you know, the Amazon of education or the Netflix of education, did search terms on them, you'll find uh, dozens of examples, maybe hundreds. So, uh, nothing nothing has really taken off. Um, And it's because... I think, uh, well, for one thing, I mean, well, in my experience with the Educause, or EduSource thing, I ran into the subscription barrier thing there, too. Um, and, and here's what the story was. Uh, we had this network for sharing resources. Not all of the resources were 100% open access. Um, so we had some contributors. I um, won't we'll, I won't name them because I can't. I can't remember them. But but um, actually, I can remember them. I just won't name them because there's no point now. But they said, you know, um, we can't allow people to participate in this network of resources unless they're properly authenticated. So the only way to provide access to these resources was to introduce an authentication system. And then, of course, that broke the model of freely sharing resources because now in order to access open educational resources or learning objects, you had to sign in to the system and be a part of the system. Uh, they would only. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, except for the world wide web. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I mean the the platform already exists if people want to throw up barriers on it. And that's when the model breaks. And you know, in in and it doesn't break 100%. I mean, lots of edu- educational resources are shared under things like Eduroam, uh, Shibboleth, other kinds of identity federations. You know, it's not 100% broken, but it's always exclusive. Like, I don't have Eduroam, so I can't access a whole range of resources that are available to other people. Similarly, with publishing federations, etc., Um you know, uh, even like JSTOR, right? I, I have difficulty act- accessing JSTOR materials, and that's supposed to be open. Uh, so, you know, um, so there you have it. So, so, yeah, so when Feldstein says, I got venture capital funding for this great resource sharing platform, the very fact that he has venture capital funding means that he needs to monetize it, means that he's going to put up subscription barriers of some sort, means that it's broken out of the gate. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. The The audio recording, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, no problem at all. All right. All right, talk to you later. Bye.